Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Good morning, everyone. So I get the privilege of continuing our Towards Belief series and Weirdly enough, I've caused Nathan a bit of a heart attack. I've actually prepared a PowerPoint today, which is deeply disturbing. I think it might be the second time ever in the history of my preaching I've ever used some sort of electronic, like PowerPoint support. So if we bring that up, just on the start slide, and I'm going to attempt to use the frustrating little thing that uh, occasionally advances it. Fantastic. So I'm not sure why Ian gave me this one. I always get this feeling, you know, every time Ian asks me to preach, that he picks the topic area that he wants me to preach on to sort of like give me a hint about something or to go through it. This one is pretty close to my heart because I, uh, for many years, you know, uh, enjoyed justifying my atheism using science. Um, And, uh, you know, and uh, as you would know, in this Towards Belief series, there's been a a lot of look about the sort of contemporary trend towards atheism and a few quotes from Richard Dawkins and all of that. Um, I used to follow the old atheists, not the new atheists, because I'm old. But um, it's my privilege today to talk a bit about God and science, and I'm going to try and keep it succinct so that we can, um, uh, you know, just, I guess, even have a discussion. Who knows? We'll even see. We might even have time for a Q&A. We'll see how we go. So I'm going to attempt the advancing thing, and look at this. So before we kick off, first thing I want to look at is just about life at the moment, life in the world today. If you look at the world GDP right now, that hockey stick, that's not climate change, by the way. This is actually a properly scaled economics value chart, the world GDP. And in case you can't see it, over the past 200 years or so, the economic output of the world in total, has exceeded the entire history of recorded humanity before that. We live in really staggeringly wealthy times. If we look at the percentage of people in extreme poverty, even over the past 200 years, since 1820, you might not know this from the news, but the number of people, the percentage of people in extreme poverty is declining extremely rapidly and you go what is what is going on here Um, well the answer is a huge amount of economic growth especially in China in more recent years but all over the world we are living in unprecedented wealthy luxurious times for the majority of humanity's existence 90 percent of the people have lived off the crumbs They've lived off bugger all. They've done nothing. There's been nothing to get at. No superannuation, what a joke. There has been literally nothing for the majority of people the majority of time. And what we live in this amazing, in Australia, we're at the top echelon of this. Extreme poverty isn't even a thing. Extreme poverty being defined by living off $1.90 a day, US. Um, it's literally not an issue for us anymore. The number of people, this is an outright number, not a percentage, not in extreme poverty, 
Have a look at that chart. It's gone up to six and a half billion people not in extreme poverty. And the thing that's really interesting is at the same time, the number of people in extreme poverty in outright terms, even as the world has grown, even as the population of the world has grown, has actually fallen. So it's still terrible that something like 500 million people plus are living in extreme poverty, but that's a lower number than we've had over the whole of the past 200 years, which is pretty staggering, considering the population of the world itself has grown from something like 1.5 billion to 9 billion over the same period of time. Since 1990, just the past 30 or so years, so even the young'uns, we can get into this, life has improved for billions of people. Have a look at it. If you base it at, at 1990 at 100%, child mortality, hunger, illiteracy, pollution and poverty have all dropped immensely. So hunger is doing the worst and it's only dropped to just under 60% of the level that it was. Hang on, I'll try and get this to... Sorry, I apologise. I Can we advance one more slide, please? Fantastic. And next one after that. Sorry, I, I, I didn't realise it didn't click forward. One, yep, that's it. So you can see, this is pretty staggering, what's going on. And, you know, it's kind of contrary to the sort of normal narrative of news organisations, which is, you know, how terrible life is. But it is actually the reality we live in right now. And you might go, well, what has this got to do with God and science, Rodney? You know, where are you going with this? Well, the answer to that, if we go on to the next slide, and I'll is that one of the reasons why this has happened is because of the immense growth in the knowledge of humanity over the same period of time. Right now, we have access to so much information and knowledge. It used to be that humanity was struggling to figure out what the circumference of a circle actually was. These days, we've now got artificial intelligence replacing lawyers, or sorry, briefing lawyers on how to write their briefs for court. It's pretty intense. We've gone, we've got, we've gone so far, the growth in knowledge, a lot of it based on science, has been staggering. And there is an, a clear and measurable correlation that as particularly Europe came out of the Dark Ages and invested in science, with a slight lag, engineering and other things then caught on and picked up with the scientific advances. And then out of that has come everything we take for granted today. You know, there was a famous economist named Malthus, and you've probably heard of a Malthusian view of the world. Malthus, and he had this idea that once the population of the Earth cracked 6 billion, warfare would break out, there'd be mass starvation and everything else because the finite resources of the world would not be able to support the population of the world. And that's actually a fairly contemporary popular idea with some green groups and everything else as well. But the fact is, it's entirely unsupported by the evidence. What's happened is we've figured out new and innovative ways to increase crop productions, to increase food productions. And as a result, there are fewer people in hunger than ever, ever before. Not only that, there's been a growth in universal education. Everybody gets educated now. 
unless you're in Afghanistan and you're female, and then not so much. But the majority of the world now has access to education and the quality and the depth of that education is such that when I talk to my children these days, I feel stupid because they know at the age of 15 things that I have still not yet learnt. And I'm going, what is going on? There is just such an amazing amount of knowledge and growth in it. And corresponding to that, there's also been a growth, a reduction in conflict. And you go, oh, come on, that's not true. It actually has. It used to be that during your lifetime, you could reasonably expect that the average bloke would go off to war at some point in their lifetime. Now, war is fought by sort of professionals, a little bit by remote control, and very, very rarely from the point of view of the majority of the planet. And it's a really interesting sort of issue that we've got. And as a result, there's been more resources dedicated towards growing wealth, growing amenity, growing supports, and we're in a better position than we've ever been. Which then leads us to the question, next slide, has this growth in human knowledge and wealth made God redundant? This is the tempting thought. The tempting thought here is we have become so knowledgeable, we've figured things out so well, we no longer need God. And I've just thrown up a few statements here. Who needs faith in God if we can do it all ourselves? Seems like a reasonable question. You know, we only needed those sort of superstitions when we were struggling to predict the weather. We'll pray about the weather tomorrow because we don't actually, we don't have weather forecasting and radar, so, you know, hey, therefore we'll just throw it up into the hands of God and hope that somehow or other it works. As I put up there, faith was fine for the ignorant shepherds 2,000 years ago who had no idea what was going on. Those ignorant shepherds, useless. And I used to comment on this. And if you read some of the modern commentators the Richard Dawkins of the world, who wrote a book called The God Delusion, you will see a similar vein of commentary. We have moved past it. We have managed to surpass it. We've finally fulfilled the promise of Genesis and we've got the knowledge of God. Oops, no, I'm not referring to Genesis, I'm an atheist, sorry. Um, it, it's, it, so, so we've finally gotten to this point. But, believe it or not, the ignorant shepherds saw it coming. Go to the next slide, please. Those ignorant shepherds, how dare they? In Proverbs chapter 30, in verses 7 and 9, it's attributed to a guy, Agur, not to Solomon. Um, Solomon couldn't have written this with a straight face, I think. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. I, I put it to you that we're very much in that first category for in, in Australia. I think that there is definitely still people in the world who are suffering and in poverty, and we know that's the case. But the reality is the number of people in outright terms is a lot lower than it's ever been. And the majority of people alive live in a standard of wealth that the Rockefellers in the 1930s could only dream of in a standard of hygiene, in a standard of medical care. You know that a person who's five years old today can reasonably expect to live to 100 years old? Staggering. 
That's actually the progress that we've made through all of these advances. But the world is actually a long way from perfect. In case we haven't figured that out, go to the next slide, please. Oh, maybe the world is a long way from perfect because for all of the increase in knowledge and wealth, we've still got awful crimes being committed by humans. We're so knowledgeable, but we still do really, really evil things. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, something like 20.1% of people in Australia experience mental health issues at any point in time. That's one in five. You know, this wealth isn't solving all of our problems. And in fact, if you look at the statistics over time, dissatisfaction with life, things like attempted suicides, mental health issues are actually on the rise. Social cohesion, the way in which we relate to each other and relationships are not being automatically or automagically improved by the growth of our knowledge. And so we've got this really interesting dichotomy here. We're better off than we've ever been. You've got more computing power on your phone than sent the uh, Apollo 13 to the moon. You know, none of, you've, there is just such a staggering amount that's at our fingertips. You no longer need to remember scripture, you just search it and figure it out. You know, there's nothing, you know, everything is there for us. So it leads me to the question, can science replace faith in God? Can science replace faith in God? And what is the way that we can look at science and faith in God? And that's the premise of today. And so you can see I wanted to pull up these charts because I think it is fairly confronting for us. Because right now, this room is filled with a minority of our society. People who could get up on Sunday and go to worship God. People who pray to God and believe that God answers their prayers. You know, I've read one article in preparation for this that said, we know that prayer does not work. They said, because if prayer worked, we would see it in the statistics. There would be aberrations in the statistics of outcomes that would be inexplicable. You know, that is actually the universal view. Why bother? Why pray? We'll do it all ourselves. So let's go on. Let's start off with looking at what science and God are about. And, and look, in the Towards Belief series, it's the foundation of this sermon series, there's a, a whole lot of notes and other things. I'm only going to loosely refer to those. This is one of the key points, though, that we've got to understand. When we talk about science and we talk about God and faith in God to seek an understanding of life, the universe and everything, where the answer is, of course, 42. Um, sorry, Douglas. Um, uh, you know, there are, we're actually looking at, at two domains that are answering different questions. Science is the study of the natural world, material world, and it looks at what is happening and how. When we talk about faith in God, very often we're talking about a relationship, who are we talking about and why? The fact that something happened, but not necessarily how exactly he achieved it. And that's a reasonably useful frame of reference, but I still think it's not quite the right one. 
onto the next slide. A lot of the time, we then spend time as Christians trying to grapple with how do we reconcile this whole idea of science and God. You know, science has come up with theories of evolution, God talks, the Bible talks about creation. Can we sort of get our Venn diagram to overlap and we'll get science and God to just have this little intersection point and that's the point of engagement and agreement. And this is something that seems like a fairly wise way to go, but I put to you, it still doesn't quite work. You see, the problem that we're in those, all those Venn diagrams and approaches, if we go to the next slide, is that the Bible tells us that we learn about God through science. We can learn about God through science. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about how since the creation of the world, this is Paul writing, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. See, the Bible tells us that if you want to get to know God, look at what he's made. And so you see, the issue of sort of like saying that God and science are asking, faith in God and, and, and science are looking at two different things, well, that's sort of true, but it's not quite right. So I've got a more accurate Venn diagram. The next slide. This is actually the real view of what's actually going on. If you look at it, Science is just trying to get a glimpse of something that is infinitely bigger than science, which is God. God is bigger than the universe. You know what we've discovered about the universe? You know, it's big. <laughs> it's really, really, really big. And we've also discovered that it's kind of remarkable. And as we've zoned in in physics, in astronomy, where we, and, and we've gone outwards and we've said, oh, wow, how big is this, wow, looks like it's, you know, 15 billion light years end to end sort of thing. Um, well, 30 billion because it's meant to be 15 billion from the centre, but 30, you know, it's, it's, it's really big. It's unimaginably big. It's so big that the Voyager space probe that we sent off in 1978, the fastest human object ever, ever made, has only just escaped our solar system, let alone our galaxy. And our galaxy is a tiny little part of the whole universe. That's how big space is. And the Bible tells us that God is outside of the universe. God made the universe. What does that mean about God? And you see, I believe that one of the great problems when you look at um, science and God is that quite often we equate the two. We say that faith in God is comparable to the discussion about science. It's not comparable at all. Science is like examining the toenail of an elephant. You can learn a great deal about that through the toenail, but you're still only going to learn a fraction of the, about the elephant. God is vastly bigger than that. All of us, with all of the insights and experience we've got, know so little. And that's what actually science tells us. Science, the more we know, the more we discover we don't know. Isn't it amazing? So we've got to change our perspective about the way that we frame God and science. And I believe that as people of faith, when we talk to people who look at science as being a reason to not believe in God, I think we've got to understand their perspective. And their perspective is if they're looking at the entire world through the prism of that little circle that's inside there, there is so much that they are not able to see. 
And we've got to understand where they're coming from to be able to engage in a meaningful conversation about helping people to find faith. And if you actually are struggling with your faith because of science, it is helpful to sit there and think about the things that sit outside of the scientific domain. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more shortly. First thing is to note is we study science using a God-given intellect. There's this quote from Dr John Lennox. It's quite a good quote. Either human intelligence ultimately owes its origin to mindless matter or there is a creator. These are your choices. It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. So if you're just a series of chemical reactions, what the heck is intelligence anyway? How do you know you're actually even alive? <laughs> you're just a chemical reaction. What do we, you know, there is, it, 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 when you start getting down to the foundations of it, you really actually have no fundamental animating rationale for even thinking that you think. And this is the great challenge for atheism. You know, our curiosity about the universe stems from the fact that we know that there is more for us to know. We know that we are ignorant. We know that we don't know things. And this is unique amongst all of the creatures on this earth. And this earth, this planet, is unique in that we have not even managed to find a microbe on another planet. So, you know, there's a lot to say about what's going on here. I've thrown up this little statistic. A lot of times you see different statistics about the genetic similarity between humans and other creatures. Um, the commonly quoted statistic is that we're 98.8% the same as a chimpanzee. But after I did a little bit of digging, because I was like, yeah, that doesn't quite sit well with me. I don't buy it. You start doing a little bit more digging. You know we're actually 50% genetically the same as a banana, right? It's true. Genetically. But there's only one catch. D genes are only 2% of your DNA. So when you get really, so if you're talking about genes versus the rest of your DNA, well, yeah, you're not so much the same as a banana. Okay, sorry B1 and B2, you're not with us. But even when you take that into account, humans are 93% the same as chimpanzees. That's pretty impressive. And yet... And yet, chimpanzees do not innovate. They do not solve problems. And they certainly do not seek, build telescopes to understand the mysteries of the universe. I haven't seen a chimpanzee attempt to write a research paper on humans and pass that knowledge on to the next generation of chimpanzees. They have shown no sign of creating technology or practicing religion. And these are the genetically closest thing living on earth to us right now. Some people will tell you we share a common ancestor, genetically speaking. I don't know whether that's true or not, but the reality is there is something different about humans. The very fact that we're having this conversation, sitting in a church, wearing clothing, enjoying technology, afterwards enjoying morning tea and not fighting over it, is a sign of the difference between us and animals. And there's something more than genes at play. Which leads me to a question about what about morality? What about morality? 
Now, I, I tread on shaky ground here because this is a pet hatred of, uh, of my wife's and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Sometimes you'll see people from a Christian perspective saying, without God, I wouldn't know what right and wrong is. Well, I actually believe that's incorrect. I, my life would be a wreck. People who don't know God are automatically evil and destined to be evil forever. Well, that's still not actually what the Bible says. You're actually challenging the authority of the Bible here. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for atheists is the, pro- the fact that they frequently try to do the right thing. Atheists are frequently good people. There are some really decent humanitarian atheists out there. And that's a problem because it actually doesn't really make sense. If life is really a product of random chance and has no person with just a series of chemical reactions, a, a, a product of the universe, or if you're getting into the sort of random sort of crud that goes around these days that passes for theory of metaverse and multiverse, you know, I just expressed a really big opinion there, didn't I? Um, anyway, there is no right and wrong. Right and wrong is entirely arbitrary. Might is right. If we lived in a society of cannibals, then cannibalism would be right, wouldn't it? Because that's the overwhelming view of our society. Hey, this is, by the way, actually the Dawkins argument. They, his argument is that it's the herd mentality, it's the herd that defines morality. And that's why morality sort of shifts over time. His argument is, in fact, that that altruism is what creates a society and then makes it work together. But, of course, the, 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 the falseness in that argument is, well, you're making the Nazi society as morally equal, the Nazi vision of society as morally equal to any other vision of society. Because that's just a group of people who happen to believe the same thing, isn't it? And we all know that that's not right. Atheists know that that's not right. I saw the most stupid thing in the world, I thought, yesterday in the paper. Did you see that there were protests going on around, uh, in Melbourne? There were some protests going on around, uh, I can't, I'm not even sure what the issue was, but I know that some Nazis turned up. And I've often thought that the Nazis are probably a figment of the media imagination. But sure enough, there they were, throwing out their stupid salutes, wearing black gear with face masks, as they should. They should be ashamed of themselves. It reminded me a little bit of Blues Brothers. Anyone seen Blues Brothers? You know, where Jake sits there and they're in the car and they've got the Illinois Nazis marching over the bridge and they rev him off the car. And Anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good scene. Blues Brothers, a good movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it and you'll, talk about, you'll know the scene I'm talking about. But we know, and everybody knows, and atheists know that that is wrong, that the belief that one race is superior to another is actually facile and stupid and pointless and wrong. It does not work. It does not fit reality. In fact, there is only really one race, the human race, right? And, you know, and, and we know this, and atheists know this, and that's a problem for atheists because why do they know it? <laughs> what is telling them? Well, the Bible says that everybody's got a conscience. The Bible says that God is created in the image of man. The Bible says that it's the spark of God that makes humanity different from all other animals. It's not, it's not our DNA. 
We're made out of the same dirt that everything else is made out of. Same stuff, same atoms. But there's something else. And that something else is the spark of life, the Spirit of God. And in fact, it's entirely consistent with the Bible to have good atheists. Because no matter how much sin there is, inside that person is still the life spirit of God. The challenge for atheists is to explain their own goodness. In fact, the Bible goes on and says that a scientific approach can help people to find God. And now I'm really straying here. A scientific approach can help to find God. And what do I mean by that? In John 8, 31, 32, scripture I used to use a lot. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, if you experiment, if you test out what I am saying, if you put it into practice, and this is to people who believe him, he's not actually say, he's saying, don't even, don't even start with the unbelief, just, you know, if you put it in practice, you will find out if it's true. You will find the truth through experimentation. You know, in Acts chapter 17, it's, it's recorded about how the Bereans and the, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They didn't accept what Paul was saying as being true automatically. They investigated it. They checked it. They verified it. They used what is commonly considered to be a scientific method. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the idea of the wise and foolish builders. And he says, if you listen to my teachings and put them into practice, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The storms will come, the floors will rise, the wind will blow, but your house will stand. But if you don't listen to my teachings, you're built on sand and everything will collapse. Now, either that is true or it's false. The invitation that God gives every single human being is to test it out. Use the scientific method to test it. And if you're inclined scientifically and you don't believe in God, well, try it. You don't need to believe in God to try it. You can start the process of even investigating it to see whether or not it's true. And if what Jesus says is true, you will find the truth. That's the reality of it. So in short, because I am wrapping it up here, this next slide is the last one. I told you I'd be quick. In short, science is the study of the material world. It gives us great knowledge about the way we live and it helps us to understand the mind of God. This is what, this is what the Bible tells us. We see through creation the beauty of the Creator. We know that the Creator is a fairly interesting person because he invented taste buds. All right? Food does not... Why does food taste good? Does petrol taste good to a car? Sometimes it smells good to the human feeling it, but that's another story. The, the reality is that we have these, this amazing enjoyment of life. What we learn about creation through, uh, it, it, when we look into it is that whoever created it knows how to enjoy life, knows how to create joy and satisfaction and happiness. But we also know that life is much, much more than the material world. For the big questions of meaning and purpose, right and wrong, love and hate, respect and integrity, these are things that the material world can't explain. These things are not going to be explained by science. 
All right? What, why do we say something is fair or it's not fair? I tell you what, in the chimpanzee world, the biggest, most dominant chimpanzee gets to rule the roost. It's not an election. There's no election going on. Who's the best at doing the job? No, it's who's the strongest and can dominate. That's the animal kingdom. Human, not so much. We're going, hey, there's a better way. There's a much better way if we want to organise things better. We've tried the way of the animals, haven't we? Didn't work very well. Sometimes we're trying to go back to it, but that's another story altogether. At the same time, I'll put it to you, it's a mistake for people of faith to reject science, even when some scientists make the much bigger mistake of thinking that scientific knowledge is sufficient to explain everything. I think it's a really bad idea for people of faith to reject science. Science is actually a glimpse into the mind of God. Science, uh, understanding what is and how it works is something that we should love and enjoy. It's actually the reason why we created science in the first place. Let's be very clear. Scientific inquiry was invented in a context of faith, of a belief that there is an order in the universe to understand, that God has created rules of engagement about how things work. And the more that we've investigated, the more that we've found, the more that we've found, the more questions we've got, the more questions we've got, the more we investigate. And that is the beauty of what science can bring when it's put in the correct context of the big picture of faith of God. And lastly, I just want to put it to you that the biblical account of a perfect creation followed by a sinful fall along with a hope of redemption is easily the most reasonable and useful explanation for the way, why the universe came to be, for why life exists and why the world is the way it is, warts and all. When you actually look at it, there's no other reasonable explanation for why these things are. You know, everybody acknowledges the Big Bang happened. But why did it happen? You know, what happens if you've got a lot of nothing and you do nothing to it? Nothing. Something happened. We know that that is the case. And so you start looking at it and you say, how does this work? When we look at human relationships, every single person in this room is flawed. Every single one of us sins. We're not just historic sinners, we're present day sinners. And what is the only thing that enables us to come together? Grace forgiveness and love. And the love isn't because each, we're all perfect. The love is shown when we're not perfect and we hang out with each other and care for each other regardless of that lack of perfection. You see, the Christian way, it really works. And it's the most reasonable and logical explanation of the universe, the best that we've got. And that's one of the things that can give us confidence in the faith that we have. Obviously, you go far beyond that when you have a personal relationship with God and then you can see God in action. I talked briefly before about the idea that some people believe that you can't see, you know, prayers being answered. I realised as soon as I read it what the false assumption was. Of course, you can't count how many prayers are being answered because you don't live in a world where prayers aren't being answered. You don't have a counterfactual to test against because we live in a world where God is always intervening. You're not going to see statistical anomalies because he is always intervening. You don't have the opportunity to test the non-presence of God. And that's the great flaw in their assumption as to what they work. They say, oh, well, 
God only operates in Christian communities. No, he doesn't. God operates in a lot of places. Don't forget, last time I preached, what, whose prayer was God answering? Manasseh. Manasseh was a guy who soared in half, one of God's prophets. God answers the prayers of evil people too. Ridiculous, because that's who God is. You know, King David. I was thinking about him as I walked up here. Immoral, murdering, vile, abuser of authority. Forgiven by God. You know, there is hope for us because God actually shows us that kind of hope. So that's, that's it for me about God and science. I'm hoping that somewhere along the line here, there's something that has helped you to think about the world in a fresh way and to be able to engage confidently in conversations with people who are seduced by the idea that the iPhone is the highest form of reality. And by the way, have you noticed that people are very religious with their iPhones? iPhone prayer? They bow their heads, they look at the screens, that's what they do in mass congregations. You know, this is the reality of life. So I, I hope that's helpful to you. I'll close off in prayer and um, we welcome everyone back. And if you've got any questions, talk to me after. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for your word. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to look into the way that things work. You know, we know that this this world, this universe is utterly, utterly, staggeringly amazing. And it's even more amazing, Lord, that you've given us the ability to play with it. Somehow or other, that as humans, we can be creative. We can contribute to it. We can even make things happen that were impossible before. But all of that happens only in the context, Lord, of what you have made and what you have given. Help us, Lord, to get a, a, an appreciation for who you are, to learn to be like you, to, to learn to not only like the things of stuff and what it, how things work, but to really learn to value the love and the joy and the appreciation and respect and integrity and all these other things that we know are what give life meaning and purpose. Help us, Lord, to be a cure to a world that, although it's incredibly wealthy, is also struggling so much in its form of relationships with each other. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.